Welcome to the closeout episode of This Week in the CLE in Week 3 of Ohio's stay-at-home coronavirus era. Editors and reporters at Cleveland.com get together online each morning to talk about the coronavirus. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn with editors Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon, along with reporter Emily Bamforth. I'm betting all three of you need the weekend break. (laughs) I will take it. Well, you can't get to the end of the week without getting to the end of this podcast, so let's get started. Will I get unemployment benefits if I leave my job because my workplace is not taking precautions to keep me safe from the coronavirus? This is a question that I've been asked on my text message account over and over again. A lot of people believe their employers are not compelling safe social distancing, and they're really worried about getting the virus and taking it home to their families. They think they should be able to absent themselves from their workplace until the crisis is over, and they think they should get unemployment. Laura Johnston, Courtney Astolfi has the answers. Yeah, this is a question we've gotten a lot, but unfortunately, this would be tough. The employment experts that Courtney talked to advise people not to walk away without really thinking it through and taking a bunch of intermediary steps. But it's not a completely closed door, right? There could be exceptions where you actually could get unemployment if you walked away. Sure. But the system overwhelmingly favors cases where a person's employment is involuntarily terminated. So someone must show they had just cause for leaving. That means a worker must demonstrate that a reasonable person under similar circumstances would also quit. And that is determined on a case-by-case basis. So different hearing officers could arrive at different conclusions. So you need to get a note from your doctor saying it's unsafe for you to go into work. And if you ask for personal protective equipment that you don't have, you need to document that fact. Whatever it is, you're going to have to make your case. I thought the government, though, was making exceptions during the pandemic. I could have sworn Lieutenant Governor John Houston said something about this. Aren't the rules eased up just during this crisis? They are, but they're mainly for people ordered into quarantine by their employer or doctor. There aren't special allowances for people worried about their work conditions are going to affect their family or risk to themselves. Well, speaking of an unemployment system overrun by huge demand, Jane Cahoon, the latest unemployment numbers came out Thursday, and wow. Yes, for for the week ending April 4th, we had over 224,000 unemployment Uh, claims. But believe it or not, that's actually a bit of a drop from the previous week when we had over 274,000. However, the the last few weeks really tell the story. More than 696,000 people have filed for unemployment benefits in Ohio in the three weeks since they started closing the businesses. And And just to give you an idea of how stunning that is, for all of 2019, the state received 364,603 claims applications for the whole year. And and the Wall Street Journal had the total number of Americans that have filed since this began, and it's 17 million. It's just a staggering number. But, you know, I'm still hearing every day from people who cannot get through or get straight answers from the Ohio Unemployment Office. And almost every day, it seems like John Houston is telling people, hey, it's working, be patient, we're, we're trying to get it going. But people's patience has run out. It's been weeks now, they don't have money coming in. And the tenor of the messages we're getting from them, are it's almost getting histrionic. They're so worried 
what's going on, Jane? Are they going to get this thing fixed or not? As you said, the lieutenant governor has repeatedly said, you know, we're adding capacity to this system. And he rattles off, you know, the number of claims that they've paid on already. And he keeps reassuring people that even if they can't get through right away, their benefits are, are going to be retroactive. But it's just a never ending question. When are they going to fix it so people can get through, you know, in a timely fashion? I, I guess we'll have to ask them about it one more time. Yeah, I think the difference, if I'm if I can parse the, the emails and texts that we're getting, if you have a standard situation where you've just been laid off and you put it in, then that gigantic machinery of a computer system will process you. But if you have any wrinkle, any little thing that raises a question, you get pulled out of that smoother machinery, shoved off into some estuary on the side. And it sounds like nobody's moving those cases. It's, it's almost like the state has set up a system to deal with the vast majority. But because there's so many people now in that estuary, uh, there, there's panic. So maybe when we ask the question, we could kind of aim it that way that, that it sounds like systems working for the everyday normal cases. What are you putting in place to deal with people that have these wrinkles? Yeah. I think that's the first time I've heard estuary used as that analogy. I like it. You're like, I'm going to have to use that sometime. (laughs) It's a swamp. The state government, it's a swamp. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the strain of Ohio's stay-at-home order getting to people? Jane Cahoon, we had an interesting spectacle yesterday. People protesting Governor Mike DeWine's social distancing rules outside the state house, who were actually following, mostly, those social distancing rules. <laughs> what was their protest about? Well, that was rather interesting, although some of them probably did get a little too close to one another. They they seemed really upset about all the restrictions that have been put in place. There were there were about 70 people. And in addition to chanting calls for the ouster of Dr. Amy Acton, the uh, Ohio health director, they were holding signs saying things like, hey, if we're all in this together, why do you still have a paycheck? And I don't. So they were clearly upset about all these business closures and losses of jobs. And they also clearly don't believe what state officials have been saying about the necessity of those measures. They were pretty loud, right? People watching the briefing on their screens at home could hear the chanting. Right. To the point where Governor DeWine had to acknowledge it. And and so did Amy Acton. DeWine, though, I, I think people thought he handled it pretty well. He said, hey, I'm from Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is a really politically engaged area of the state. And he said, they used to have protests there all the time, and he, he and his wife, Fran, are big First Amendment supporters, and these people had every right to express themselves, but he, he did kind of caution them, hey, if you're shouting or chanting, you know, don't shout too close to, to somebody else. Keep your distance. There, but there is a bigger issue here. They don't believe, as you said, these restrictions are warranted. They believe they're hurting the economy. They don't think the projections that have been used to 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 put all these things in place really merit this kind of strict action it's the other side of a conversation that largely is taking place on social media um and probably you know merits some time in the sunshine yeah there there are people who definitely believe this is an overreaction and they're making their voices heard 
but you know what we've heard from those in charge is that they would they would rather be blamed and second guessed for being overprepared than they would for for losing any lives that that didn't have to be lost. My original question mentioned the strain of these restrictions. I we I sent around an email this morning that we got from somebody that clearly is feeling that strain. It was talking about how how upset they were. We're ending this third work week of of being at home. And and for many people, it's really the fourth week because a lot of companies had closed down voluntarily. People keep mentioning the Groundhog Day scenario where every day is like every other. You know, is the protest a manifestation of that? Are the protesters just exploding for their homes in frustration, this frustration that many of us are feeling? And Laura Johnson and Emily Bamforth, feel free to jump in on this. I mean, I think that because it's not as bad as everybody thought it might be, then they're not seeing the mass casualties that we're seeing in Italy or New York. And they're like, it's not happening here, so we shouldn't have to close down because of it. And it's kind of a catch-22 because if we, according to the officials, if we hadn't shut down as strictly as we did, we would have a huge overrun on our hospitals. So the the absence of the drama here is showing that the measures work. But what do you do about the strain? I mean, I I think all of us in some shape or form have felt it. I mean, I don't think any of us are really enjoying the last three weeks, maybe the most introverted. I don't know. So, so I I don't know. And we we have jobs. Right. Can you imagine the people who don't have jobs? They still have all their same expenses. They've got kids that they have to feed and they're, they're frustrated. They're scared and, and they're angry too. And And there's no end point yet. And I think it's the uncertainty. I have a really hard time with uncertainty. And, you know, if you knew that it was just going to be one more week or just to the end of May, like we could get through it. But we don't know when this is going to end. And I think that's really hard for people. And we have at least three more weeks. So we'll have to see how that strain (laughs) grows. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Can I catch the coronavirus if I run outside? Wait. I thought we answered this question on a podcast last week and repeatedly in stories. It just keeps coming back. It started when I saw a lot of people walking down my sidewalk and wondered, could I get the coronavirus from them by walking in the same space? A lot of other people had the same thought, it turns out, and we thought we had answered it. The virus drops to the ground. The outdoor conditions don't let it survive. Emily Bamforth, you wrote several stories on this. But now we have a new report, and it's much more dicey. Oh, absolutely. It's something that has kind of spread across the internet like wildfire, probably because it's in a nice little simulation where you can see potential respiratory droplets fly from a person walking onto a person walking behind them. It's based on the idea of a slipstream, which you've probably heard about bikers or runners, particularly bikers, using this phenomenon to go faster. Um, And it's the idea that you would go right behind someone to get caught up in the air current that's being created by their fast movement. So I'm riding a bike or running or walking. They use the 2.5 miles per hour speed as the, as the, the benchmark, I guess. But I'm moving at a brisk clip. I'm breathing hard. And so the droplets I exhale, unlike those other previous studies where it just drops to the ground and, and doesn't survive, when I'm moving like that, they get caught in my own whirlwind, as it were, and stay in the air for the people coming up behind me? From what I've researched, some of the heavier drops, there are 
kind of a blend that come out. Um, and the heavier ones fall to the ground, but these smaller particles uh, can create kind of a cloud and go behind you in this this stream, um, according to this uh, engineering research team out of Belgium. But uh, it seems like it is becoming more of a feasible idea. All right. So everything up to now before this engineering, and it's not a published study. They just did the simulation. Everything up to now has recommended if you're outside, you should go outside. You should exercise. Just stay six feet away from each other. But these engineers say that depending on how fast you're going, it could be as far as 50 feet away for a bike. That, that's not easy in a park or a running trail. So, so how did the engineers actually do this? How did they do the simulation? So um, it's important to note that this is not a scientific study. They kind of went backwards in terms of scientific methodology. So they released the results to the media first, and there wasn't much methodology with it. They were more uh, just saying this is a theory based on what we know about physics. This isn't a viral simulation, so we don't actually know how much of the actual virus could get onto the person behind um, and whether that would be transmissible. But basically, it's just it's all based on this concept of of how they know air moves. Um, so if you think about it, um, six feet apart is actually I did a little more research and it's something that's been around for a really, really long time. Um, and it's just the general accepted distance that germs are able to travel. But when you think about it, we don't actually know very much about this virus at all. We still don't know how it reacts to being outside, light, wind. So it's likely that uh, it could be combated by staying six feet apart. Um, but these researchers are saying, hey, let's think about this. How far do we actually need to be? Okay, so that's the question. How far do we actually need to be? Uh, so it's going to be about 13 feet for walkers. It's going to be more for runners and bikers. Um, about 32 feet for runners. Uh, not that I looked that up because I've been running outside at all. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> positioning is also really important. Um, so we talked to a pulmonologist at the Cleveland Clinic, and he said that this theory could have some weight. Uh, but you really need to just look at where you're standing. If you're staggering yourself, that can also be helpful. If you're to the side, it looks even more safe. Just try not to be directly behind someone. So if you're drafting someone in the metro parks trying to get a boost from their airstream, probably skip I got, that. I've got to say that the, I keep thinking we get to a place where we have an answer, but really it's all as clear as mud. Can I get it from my pets? Can I get it outside? It just keeps changing. And so I guess the solace to take here is that we, we really don't have rampant infections that you can see from people who are outside and exercising. I mean, it's like, I mean, we, we, there's a lot, like you said, we, there's a lot we don't know about this thing, but, but if all of a sudden a bunch of runners and bicyclists were starting to get the coronavirus, I think we'd have heard about it, right? Absolutely. And if you look at the pet situation, as some more evidence comes out that cats might be able to contract the coronavirus, that's when people start listing these measures of, Quarantine your cat if they seem to be having these respiratory symptoms. Don't touch your pets if you have COVID-19. Um, I'm working on a story about zoos and how they're responding to the tigers um, at the Bronx Zoo having coronavirus in their system. And they have changed in the way that they interact with their animals. 
So it's all just reacting to these things. And I think that if it shows up that people are putting themselves at risk by going outside, that's when we're going to start cracking down on it. Okay, great. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How far can a single infected person spread the coronavirus? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published a striking case study that has an answer to that question, and it's a lot. It's about someone labeled a super spreader who was linked to the infections of 15 people, including three who died. And Laura Johnston, that super spreader was not even that sick himself. No, he only had mild respiratory symptoms. This story by Robin Goist is really enlightening. This guy in Chicago was what you call a super spreader. And he was spreading the disease back in February before social distancing rules went into effect and everyone was taking a whole lot of precautions. He had recently traveled out of the country and then he went to a funeral the night before he shared a takeout meal with two family members. He hugged them. Both these people got sick, as did another funeral attendee, and one person died about a month later. Then another family member who also had close contact with the Chicago guy at the funeral visited one of the original patients in the hospital. That person got sick. Three days after the funeral, he attended a birthday party with family. They shared food. They hugged. Seven party guests developed symptoms, and two people were hospitalized, required intubation and a ventilator, and then they died. The spread kept going. One of the patients who later died was cared for by a family member and a home care professional, both of whom are considered presumptive positive cases since they're not testing them. And another birthday party uh, guest infected somebody at church. God, it's it's like right out of Stephen King's book, The Stand. Is there anything to read into the timing of this case study coming out right before many people might have been planning to be in churches and temples for the high holy days? I don't think so, but it does underscore the need to continue to social distance. This was basic stuff. Hugs at a funeral, sharing of meals. I think one person who got it was sitting in an aisle in a church or somewhere close to this guy. And it just it just spread. It just it, I mean, it, it seems like this thing is is very simple to transmit to others. Yeah, these spider webs of cases are fascinating and they're really disturbing and sad. I remember at the beginning of all this in early March, I read about a lawyer in New Rochelle, New York, who gave the coronavirus to more than 50 people, including two caterers at a bar mitzvah he attended. So some people are just really contagious. So Emily Bamforth, Jane Cahoon, Laura, anyone (laughs) planning to attend any gatherings this weekend? (laughs) Only a Zoom gathering. Yeah, exactly. We live it up on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, I'm sick of I'm sick of that whole thing. But yeah. I'll be glad when we see each other again. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How fast did the coronavirus spread through Ohio? Jane Cahoon, it's hard to believe that it was just one month ago yesterday that Ohio confirmed its very first COVID nineteen cases, all in Cuyahoga County. That was just two months after the news of this thing started to spread in China when it was just a few dozen cases. But Ohio had its first case March 9th. And from there, where are we? Well, we are now at over 5,500 cases and 213 deaths in Ohio. And uh, since that day, a month ago, we've seen schools close, businesses close, and in order to stay at home. So a lot has happened during, during that month. It seems like a lot longer ago. I saw an interesting meme on social media that it's leap year. So February had 29 days, March had 500 and April is five years. <laughs> That's a good so, one. 
So those first cases, we had a clear idea where they came from. It was the guy who was in the bus with all the kids coming back from the Washington thing. And we had two people who were on that infamous Egypt cruise where so many people got infected. But only days later, we had the first case of community spread where no one knew where it came from, which was much more ominous because it meant it had been in the state for a while. Yeah, I think we were kind of naive to think, you know, as we found out about these cases, we'd know like how people got it. But we have not been able to keep up with that because basically many people don't know how they got it. And and because we have this limited testing and, and people have mild symptoms or sometimes no symptoms, there are perhaps tens of thousands of more cases and possibly like 1% of the population could be walking around with it. On March 9th, we had Cuyahoga County as the only county in the state with cases. By April 9th, it was in all but four of the 88 Ohio counties. It went through Ohio like the wind. By the middle of March, we were getting all those restrictions you mentioned from the Governor Mike DeWine to keep us apart. And we, we do clearly, we clearly have slowed it. I mean, the numbers are nowhere near what the projections were. But they do keep climbing. We're, we're, we're still rising to a peak, it looks like. Right. They are climbing. And as you said, not exponentially, as, as many had feared. But now we've been told to expect that this thing is going to peak in a little more than a week uh, with 1,600 cases in a day, probably April 19th is the current estimate. Yeah, that's the, com- the one coming from the state. There are others that either said we peaked a couple days ago or or... A little bit later, but we're, we are coming in for it. It's every science fiction movie come to life right before our eyes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Can the blood of coronavirus survivors help me if I get infected in Ohio? We got news yesterday that Ohio hospitals might soon start using elements of the blood of survivors to do just that. Jane Cahoon, this could be a very good news story. What is the story? Well, it's an experimental treatment that uses plasma from people who have had COVID-19 and recovered from it. And what they hope to do is intravenously transfuse the plasma into patients. They would do this treatment on patients who had a really high risk of dying and get their consent, of course. And they hope it's going to improve their chances for survival and maybe reduce the likelihood that they're going to need to be placed on a ventilator for breathing support. The way this works is, if I'm reading everything correctly, is because the plasma contains antibodies to the virus created in the systems of the survivors, by putting those into me, those antibodies help me fight the virus. It's it's not a cure, right? And it's not foolproof? Right, right. And yes, as you said, it's, it's all about the antibodies. The the researchers say the evidence on this is limited, but from anecdotal evidence, that suggests that it could shorten the course of the disease and and help people with their symptoms. And and it's a technology that's been used before, before vaccines and things were developed. What was the news about this exactly that uh, that Andrew Tobias reported? Right. Lieutenant Governor John Houston announced at Thursday's briefing that the FDA had approved the protocol for this treatment, which was developed by the Lindner Research Center at the Christ Hospital in Cincinnati. And hospitals across the state, including university hospitals in Cleveland, have expressed interest in in using the protocol. Does this create the need for a blood drive among virus survivors? 
well, I, it would appear so, you know, which means we'll have to identify people who have recovered. So that could be a little complicated. All right, Laura Johnson and Emily Bamforth, you're the younger people on this podcast, not like Jane and I, who are in the more vulnerable population. You have to keep reminding me of that. The, the, odds, the odds are very much in your favor. If you get infected with the virus, you'd likely have a head cold. And if you recovered and had the antibodies, would you be willing to donate your plasma to save old people? Laura, I know you will. You donate blood like every other week. <laughs> my, not as much as my husband he gives platelets whenever he can but i would be all about it if, if we could figure out a way to help but i think jane's right we'll have to figure out who has survived it because it's not just the people who were in a hospital who got better i've started to think back like well you know the the last time i felt bad maybe you know it was in february and did i really have the coronavirus and i didn't know maybe i've already you know, past this point. So I think that is a, a really interesting question. Well, I had the same feeling. You all know I had that devastating reaction to the mm -hmm. second shingles vaccine. And I'm thinking now, wow, did I have the <laughs> coronavirus? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a scary thing. What about you, Emily? Would you be willing to uh, share your antibodies? So I actually can't donate blood. Um, so I don't know what the case would be for plasma. I lived in England during a uh. epidemic that won't allow me to do that. Wow. Um, but if I could, I would. I think that we're all looking for a way to help, especially younger people. So I think that would be a great step if it works out. Well, I think we would all prefer that both you and Laura and Jane and I don't get the coronavirus. We need everybody ha healthy and happy and cranking out the coronavirus stories. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. Our third week under the high stay-at-home order comes to an end. Woof. I can't wait until this thing completely ends. You guys have weekend plans, even though you can't have gatherings? <laughs> uh, it is the, officially the start of my kids' spring break today. So they are Ooh. like living it up. Le yesterday, my <laughs> daughter was wearing a tank top and uh, jean shorts. And so she is celebrating beach week, apparently. But how, how is it different than every other day of the last I, three years? They don't have to log into to Google Classrooms. They've been big on playing restaurants. So they, they're drawing up menus. It's very exciting. Emily, what about you? Um, I think that this weekend is when I'm going to go out and buy a bike for the first time. So Ooh. that's going to be a fun... It's an essential business, you know. Yeah, it's like gonna shop. be a it's gonna be a fun social distancing experiment to see how I can try out these bikes without uh, touching things that other people have touched. Um, but I feel like I want to take out advantage of outside as as long as we can have it. I, you know, just that's not interesting. Not in the slipstream, Emily. But they just have, not in the slipstream. But they have to fit you for the bike ultimately, and I don't know how they do that with social distancing. I hope you have a mask. What about you, Jane? Well, I, I do have this Zoom uh, Easter family call going on, and my goal really this weekend is just to relax for uh, at least as as long as I work this weekend. Well, I, I, I do. I feel like I've been driving people way too hard. So my plan this weekend is to really pull back and make sure people get the chance because I think, I think we're, we're all going to reach the point of burnout and I'm going to feel guilty if that happens. Well, thanks, Emily, Jane, and Laura for your conversation and thank you for listening. This week in the CLE, we'll be back Monday. Have a good weekend. Thanks.